My name is Terrell Stafford, and you're listening to Behind the Note by Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, thank you for pressing play today on this episode. This is episode number 68. And if this is your first time pressing play, thank you for joining us. I want to let you know what we do here. This is where we talk about advice for a successful music career. And we do that by interviewing people who have successful music careers. And we talk to professionals that are well-known as well as professionals that are not well-known. Your everyday person, if you will. And so an example of an everyday person is Shannon Curtis. We talked to her in episode 42. She's made a great living playing house concerts. Her first experience she earned $25,000 in the span of a summer. And she now teaches musicians how to do what she does. Last episode, episode number 67, we talked to Thaddeus Ford, who is a heart attack survivor. He had to lay off of his trumpet. He could not play a single note for a whole year, which seems like death to his career. But he made a full recovery. He had to relearn how to play trumpet, and he did just that. And now he has a career as a trumpet player once again and recently toured with Kirk Franklin. Some popular musicians that we talked to in the past include Dee Snyder, episode 39 from Twisted Sister, rock and roll legend. Chris Bodie, episode 49. Rick Barker, episode number 64, who was Taylor Swift's first manager and helped her be, to become the well-known pop, pop artist she is today. Episode number 48, we talked to John Clayton. And episode number 28, we talked to Terrell Stafford. And so that's just a little taste of what we do here. We we cover everything from composing, directing, educating, performing, managing, advertising. If it has to do with music and if it will help you to have a successful career, we cover it here. So I just wanted to give you a little introduction for the first time, people. And today we have a great guest for you once again. Uh, this is someone who I always wanted to interview uh, since the birth of the show. And today is the day that it happened. I first met this person when I was 15 years old, went to a local concert at Symphony Center Chicago, and he only played two or three songs, but that was because he was conducting. He was conducting a show that would later go on to win a Pulitzer Prize. And his show was called Blood on the Fields. Today we have someone who is the only person to win a classical Grammy Award and a jazz Grammy Award in the same year in consecutive years. He did that twice in a row. And now today he is the, he is the director, artistic director of Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Uh, this guy was kind enough to sit down with me one-on-one in person on my birthday and i'm happy to bring to you right now mr winton marcellus winton welcome to behind the no podcast we're glad to have you today all right my pleasure so i want to ask you there's so many ways that a musician can earn a living will you tell us the ways that you earn a living as a musician mainly playing 
band, I think since I was 12 or 13, I always played. Um, started playing in funk bands and just various gigs around New Orleans, playing extra trumpet in orchestras, playing at weddings, playing wedding receptions, playing New Orleans parades. Um, I came to New York, I would play salsa gigs. People thought I was Puerto Rican when I first came and I played Broadway shows. I played with the Brooklyn Philharmonic. I played uh, with kind of jazz fusion bands. I played with Art Blakey and had the opportunity to play and make my own records and then I formed groups and I played with them. Then we became more a question for me of how to create jobs for other musicians and, uh, you know, through my groups and then with jazz at Lincoln Center, then how to raise money and create more opportunities for more people. And uh, that's more or less how I've been dedicated to doing it. I've been been very fortunate because I always grew up seeing my father really struggle to try to survive playing. So will you tell us how you, will you tell us a story how you came to be the artistic director, Jazz at Lincoln Center? I think in 1986, 87, a lady called me from Lincoln Center and asked me if I could do three free concerts at Lincoln Center. I said, yeah, no problem. Then I was doing close to 200 concerts a year, so the three didn't they didn't represent that many. And uh, we started doing those concerts. I would, I would curate the concert. We would all work together, me, her, and Stanley Crouch, which shows to put on, who to, who to hire, and we would have rehearsals and stuff. And then it started to get other people around it from the community, and it started to develop as Jazz at Lincoln Center. I was always the artistic director. So as the program developed, we formed a big band. And uh, then eventually I gave up my group that I was playing with and played with the big band. And um, I was always uh, participating in curating seasons. Rob Gibson came on at a certain point. He became the executive director. He was curating seasons at that time. And then when he left, I started to be one of the main people doing it. We had a team of people, and it went on from there. And why did you decide to give up the band that you were already playing in for Jazz and Lincoln Center? Uh, more opportunities for more musicians to work. And also, I asked Dizzy Gillespie about it. He said one should not be proud. The one should not, one should not be, one should not consider it an achievement to lose one's orchestral heritage. So then, you know, the generation I was from, we didn't really listen to big bands or like that kind of music. And uh, he was just saying, why is it an achievement for us to not no longer have orchestras that play actual jazz with jazz objectives? And um, it also was it made more opportunities for more people. So I was able to expand whatever I had to other musicians and to, to be more of a part of a, of a scene that was expanding. There was this tremendous strife in the scene. A lot of it was racial. Of course, it still is, because that's the nature of our country. So I was always acutely aware of it. And so it's still that way, actually. But Jazz Lincoln Center, we we try to create a world that's not governed as much by that as the rest of the jazz world. And we've been more and more, more, more successful uh, than we, we thought we would be. With uh, our first cradle was no generation gap, no segregation, and all jazz is modern which is kind of the opposite of the way our field had devolved. It's a very segregated field. It's very generation-specific, and people play only certain eras of the music and disrespect other eras of it. So I want to ask you, where did this giving heart come from? How did you gain that perspective? I just saw my father always struggle with the music. He was always trying to get younger musicians involved in it. He played modern jazz. He played New Orleans jazz. Uh, my mom was a social worker, so... It was just always a part of uh, 
the fact that we I knew our scene was in trouble for intellectually we were in trouble philosophically we were weak we saddled with with, with you know like and my entire time of being in, in New York the New York Times never had a viable jazz critic they were always lightweights and posers had were given a, an authority that was not earned by anything that I knew uh, now probably I mean I don't, they don't cover the music that much probably my entire life or never have had one real true jazz critic that knew anything about the music and uh, you know these things go up and, and down it's not a uh, you're not guaranteed to be in an era of interest or in an era that has informed people. Look at our look at our, our politics, and by that I don't mean Donald Trump. I just mean look at what's happened the last thirty years or so. Just kind of seesawing and lack of respect for each other and inability to find common ground and just the desire to just steal everything, on and on. Um, you never know what time you will be in, so I just try to respond to. My, the environment and, and do the lessons I was taught and have as much integrity as I can have. I mean, I've fallen short of my own integrity at times, so I understand that a lot of times we can't maintain the level we set for ourselves, but I I try. I wanted to ask, how has Lincoln Center changed over the years under your leadership? So when you first started till today? When we started, we weren't do, we just had three concerts that so we formed an orchestra. We have one of the largest playable libraries in the world. We have 12 education programs. We built three concert halls for jazz. We have 1.7 million members who have asserted the, the relationship with us. We webcast our shows. We have a club that's opened year-round. We have a deeply engaged board of directors. We have a world-class orchestra that travels around the world. We're involved with... Um, on and on and on. I mean, we've done we've 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 done a lot in this time. We have a lot of eleven arrangers in our band, composers. We've commissioned all kinds of music. Just in, even in the last ten years, it's been unbelievable amount of music that's come out of the orchestra. So I want to use you as an example. A lot of people look up to you, and a, a young college student, for example, is coming out of school, perhaps with a jazz studies degree, and then they don't know what to do. So I want to ask you this question: How do you go from having an idea to making it reality. And we can use use um, essentially Ellington, for example. Well, you just start small and you grow it. But with an idea, you have to always have in your mind the the, the feeling that you, you're going to go from you thinking something to making it be for real. Everything is it starts that way. If you want to lose fifty pounds, you start you lose two or three pounds. Then you start you continue to go. So a Chinese proverb did a I forget the exact numbers, but a, a, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Sometimes we like to dream just for the sake of the joy of dreaming, but other times you have a dream a dream and you go through the the steps of. Uh, Realizing that I like to think that the first thing is to write down your dream vision. And you let your dream vision have three components. What is it? How are you going to achieve it? And why do you want to do it? Make it a sentence apiece. It's something I have all my Juilliard students do. Then, then you come up with a strategic plan. And the strategic plan is like a dream vision expressed as ideas. Then a tactical plan is what you're going to do. So the tactical plan is expressed in numbers and in facts. 
So I think you, when you're armed with those things, you begin to achieve. Now you want to be realistic. How many of us get up on New Year's Day and say, we're going to lose 40 pounds. So we're not, we're, we run five miles. Well, we're not going to lose those pounds. We might walk around the block. Then we got a chance. And we have to be, to be patient but urgent. So I'm a big believer in dreaming and in, then doing the work that, that thought, word, action. You think it, you say it, and you do it. And the only way to do it is, like Nike said, you got to just do it. Like you can't, can't play around with it. Now, people that you have around you are important because just from experience, we know that it's, it's harder to do something by yourself, if at all. So you need a good team with you. Uh, what have you found to, to be the best way just to get people on board with the dream, something that does not exist yet? Well, people like to get on board with a dream that's large enough to include them. If your dream is only of yourself, why should I participate in your dream? If you have a larger dream that includes all of us and it makes sense and it's practical, I'll put some of my energy towards your dream because your dream can be my dream. So my dreams are not about myself. Jazz at Lincoln Center was not a way to get my music played. It's a way to celebrate jazz and to deal with Duke Ellington's music as a root. But then we've done everybody's music. Dave Brubeck, uh, Arnett Coleman, the, the list goes on and on. Chick Corea, uh, Wayne Shorter, we've, we played with uh, Gerald Wilson, we played with. And it, it just, Benny Carter conducted us and wrote a piece of music for us. So in as much as a vision includes other people and is broad enough and is not a selfish vision, you can get people invigorated by it. And if indeed your actions are aligned with your philosophical, what you're saying, then people get around you and they they can they can they can tolerate it, they can do it. And then when they see that we we yield results, and those results are not geared toward an individual, but they're group results that we all reap the benefits from and our culture reaps the benefit, then you start to get support. And if your intentions and your motives are pure, the people who come around you will be of a spiritual nature. Um, and when they see that you're not trying to exploit a, a, a position and your word is your bond, then you attract a certain quality of person. I've been very, very fortunate with the people I've been around and my orchestras and my bands that I play with and in terms of the board of directors of Jazz at Lincoln Center. We've had unbelievable leadership. And if uh, if you can't accept leadership, you can't give it. We see you in the concerts. We see you on stage. What does it take in the behind the scenes to make things work out? Just Good. seriousness, practice. And I've been serious since I was 12 about playing, so. Now I'm 55, so I've been, I've been serious my whole life about it, and I'm still serious. I still work and play and practice and want to play well and want to get to a much higher level, and I want to play with musicians who want to do that, and I want people to be fulfilled when they come to concerts. I want to give them their, their money's worth. I'll stay after the gigs. I talk with everybody, all the younger students I try to teach and be a positive influence on. I've been doing that my entire life, so it's not a stretch uh, for me for me to, to do it. I've been blessed with the opportunity to come out here and play. In my experience of seeing my father as I was growing up, ingrained in me an, a knowledge that it's not to be. 
not to be taken for granted, not to be disrespected, not to be, uh, you're not, you're not just given that. So it's something you have to cherish and be, be grateful for. And that gratitude has to be expressed in the quality of work that you're willing to do and the intensity of that work, the seriousness of it, and in the sacrifices you are willing to make. And I'm willing to make a lot of sacrifices. I don't have any problem with that. That's a fact of it. I saw I saw him sacrificing. Not that much tangible came out of it in terms of publicity or money or recognition. But I was there and I was recognizing. At times, it could be lonely as a leader. So will you tell us when when was it a time that you had to make an unpopular decision, but it was clearly the best decision for the team involved? I mean, I was just dealing with the music in general. The kind of racism drives everything in the same direction. Everything wants to have that same mythology with black people calling themselves names and acting a fool and all the creative objectives being for white artists. So that's the direction of the country. You see it with the movies like La La Land and stuff like that with only black guys to sell out. And you see it with the way a form like rock and roll, which was an integrated form when it was founded, ended up just being segregated bands largely. And the white guy with the guitar is the hero and the ultimate rebel. Start off with somebody in Mississippi, it ends up. And then with black people, we just ended up being fools or calling each other and making a fool out of ourselves. And we love to do that. And um, it's been painful to see it, but that's the mythology that the country wants to see. It's not all on white people. I mean, we're not we're not children. We have we have adults in our group, but the whole kind of vision of America that is that is not racial in terms of black and white, which also there are many people who fall in that category because race relations and strife in America has always been black and white versus white. It's never been black versus white. Even the Underground Railroad was a, a joint enterprise, and we tend to lose sight of that when we start to discuss discuss racial issues seriously in our country. To be a part of that dialogue and to take the stances I took, of course it wasn't popular. Amongst the older jazz musicians, amongst the younger black people, amongst the white so-called cognoscenti and intellectual experts. You remember for me, a lot of my audience and a lot of the years I played was in all the red states. I played those gigs all through the 80s and 90s, so I don't have the same perspective. I'm not willing to just lump people in the category of being racist because they vote a certain way. And so you really were risking concert attendance, for example? Not with the people. Okay. Because people understand what the truth resonates with them, white or black. It's true. It's like the kind of intellectual group or the know-it-alls or the ones who are supposed to be custodians. They're the ones who have the, that real deep corruption in them and that arrogance. And you saw that play out in the press coverage around this last election. It's just arrogance. Yeah. So everybody wants to look at Fox News and they want to look at the opposite side, but let's look at our own side. It's not possible for me to, of course, embrace a social agenda that's Confederate. I can't. I'm from the South. I grew up in segregation. So I can't embrace any political views that endorse segregation, even if it's under the name privatization or they have many terms for it. Right, However, However, there's a level of arrogance and corruption that's on our side, on the, on the side of the so-called left. It's not really the left, it's the center. 
<laughs> but there's a, there's an arrogance and a corruption and a dis, want to call people stupid and lump everybody in a category and a, and a non-hearing and the elitism. And these charges are true. A deafness. And you saw it. It played out. So, you know, it, it, sometimes it's unpopular to not fall into your tribe. And sometimes you don't fall into a tribe. The black people decided they wanted to all go in the hip-hop direction. Okay, I couldn't endorse that. I can't endorse people talking about this and that. I cannot do that. There's nothing in me that allows me to do it. So if it means I have to be alienated from them, okay, I don't like it. You know, I grew up loving black folks, man. I had a good time in the hood and all of that. I never had any problem uh, with, with, the, with the experience and never tried to run from it, but I can't endorse that. So I have to accept that. And then with the kind of so-called white experts that always are telling you what to do and they, I couldn't embrace their vision. So you had to face what comes with messing with them. Sometimes that's 25 years of bad reviews and, and, and constant attack for all, with all kind of names substituted for what the name actually is. And uh, all, many of us are called and we are, many of us are in that position. It's not just me. And uh, when you don't want to be tribal in any way, you got to pay the dues that come with that. If it's your own tribe or outside of your tribe, you know, that's, that, that comes with the territory. I was at the concert last night and uh, I observed some things beyond the music presentation. I noticed that when I'm at your concerts, I feel like you're talking directly to me. It's like, even though I'm, I'm in a large crowd, it's like you're looking right at me. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Tell me what you've learned about presenting and, and I just try to be natural, you know, when I'm talking. I don't I just grew up seeing my father talk to the few people he played for, but I try to be natural. I've been out here a long time playing now. So, you know, it's just uh I very try to be very matter of a fact, direct. These are the songs. I try to give our audience information that I would like to have if I if I came to concerts because I grew up going to concerts, I never knew what they were playing or even liked the music really until I got to be 12, but I was going to concerts since I was born. So, and all of us try to just be personable and speak to people and be be nat- natural and for real. This is what we're playing. We appreciate you coming out. We hope you enjoy it. And then we present it. I noticed, like I was sitting on a stage and there were people sitting behind the band. We were in Symphony Center in Chicago. And I just noticed you took time to look at everybody, every section. And so that that actually is very special. It makes people feel special. Um, something else people might not think about, but I, I wanted to ask you this. So there's a line of people waiting to talk to you after the show and you're very kind and you speak to everyone. At the same time, I notice how you, you still dictate every second in, in that, in that moment, you're, you find a way to give people total attention. And then at the same time, you're, you move right on through the line. How how do you do that <laughs> with your body, with your words? Well, I just try to dap everybody, find out what what they want to tell me. You know, I'd be gracious. Um, but you know, I like people, so this this type of uh, every everybody who's involved in arts don't like people. It's not a, a, a knock on them. I mean, some people don't. Everybody's life is different. Everybody's had different experiences. For someone like me, it's, it's, it's easy to interface with people. I always tell, tell my, my coworkers, I'm not good at picking people for jobs because I like everybody. I, if I meet somebody, I generally like them. Um, and uh, I like to, to meet people, shake their hand, and 
most people don't want that much from you, man. They just want you to dap them and sign something for them and be 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 human and friendly. To hug them or, or shake their hand or touch them in some way. I like touching people. I'm tactile. You know, I'll hug somebody. It's no problem. And um, I have a good intention towards them. And I also have been doing it for a long, long time. And it's, I'm, I'm honored to, to have that opportunity to, to meet with people. And I appreciate them coming out and allowing us to be a part of their lives. They don't have to do that. How do you spend the first two and the last two hours of your day? Is, is, it, is there something constant there or does it always change? It's, it's, it's different. Sometimes I walk my daughter to school early, like 8, eight how, o'clock. How old is your daughter? She's 8. Okay. 8 o'clock to 8.15 or but sometimes I have meetings. If I'm working on music, I just work on that day and night. When I have a piece this late, um, generally at the end of the day, we play the, play in a concert. I hang with some of the cats, so I just go back and work on something. How do you find time for yourself? Because because you're so famous and people I'm want your time. I'm not really that famous. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I have a lot of time for myself. Okay. Like you know, I mean, the music is my my, my own time, and um, you know, I don't I don't really. Um, so I don't require a lot. Yeah, so you're just a normal guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm very basic. Yeah, okay. I'm a very basic person. Like, I really don't require a lot. Mainly, I work. That's what I've done my, since I was eight years old. So, I got some Facebook questions here. Told people I was going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So, these are some of the questions that came up a few times. So, I um, got some questions about composing. What is your thought process for writing symphonies? Mm. It was a lot of balances. So, you know, what can we all play together? What do I want to say? What's the outline? What is the piece going to be about? What materials do I want in it? What's the meaning of things? Then technical things. What keys am I going into? What sections do I want to feature? How do I want people to feel when they're hearing it? Then I plan it and write it, chart it out on paper. Then I start to write it out. That charting on paper, is that a lead sheet in the beginning? Or do you take the no, empty I write score? Words. It's not even ah, on the score. interesting. It's just words. Talk about that a little bit. Just like outline of a, of a, of a short story you write. It just says, I'm going to go from here to there to there. Now, when I start writing it, I change it because it's based on what comes to me and what I hear. Then when I start to write it, I, mean, I just write it. I wait until it's late. Then I start writing it. So it has a lot of pressure on it. I have to finish and I stay up day and night doing it. And eventually I finish it. With the symphony pieces that have jazz band, it is very complicated. It's a lot of moving parts, a lot of dots and dashes and dynamics and a lot of balance issues. It's not, it's not, I wish I could tell you that it's easy, but it's not. How much time does it take? Um, I know that changes. Um, let's use All Rise, for example. <laughs> a long time. Is, is that months or years? Months. Okay. Me, then I correct it over a certain amount of time, but. It took me four months of working around the clock almost without sleep in the last two months. But it's like really intensive. Like it's not, what I'm saying is not normal. If you saw it, you would know. I mean, it's hard to to describe it. Saying it is one thing, doing it. If you ever stay up for a week without sleeping, you understand what it's like to go two months sleeping an hour, two hours a night. Then you get in a kind of state where you can hear clearly because you're so... So tired, at least for that piece. Now, I did this one in December. I stayed up for the last month, man. I'm still tired. I wrote a piece called The Jungle for us in the New York Philharmonic. And that was half the length of All Rise. And, man, it was a lot of work. 
Here's another popular question that came up a few times. How do you overcome mental blocks in your writing and in your improvising? I never have them, really. I've never experienced it. Generally, if I put my mind on something, something comes to me. I think if I did, I would just rely on something traditional or just do something I'd never done. I would go in opposite directions because the two opposites are the same direction. How, how important is it to get quiet and still to hear something original, if at all? It depends on who you are. What about for you? You know, I don't I'm, I hear something original anyway. Like I don't I don't really I believe human beings are creative and I don't edit what I hear so that it's only original. Like I don't have to live only in a world of myself. I can live in a world with you. I can pick I get off to this microphone doesn't have to be something different from what it is because people use them. I don't need the pitcher of water to not be a pitcher. So I don't need a blues to not be blues. It's fine as what it is. I can come up with something and that can be blues and I can write a blues. I can speak words that you understand that have been spoken by other people. I can come up with phrases that I, that people have not come up with. I don't feel a need to pressure myself in any direction because I always felt I had original things, but all of us have a different creative process and what works for me may not be work for another person. They might not like that method or they might not believe in it. And that's fine. There's a lot of us, to make up the world. And all of us, even the people who think the opposite of me, are still one thing. Some people are asking about female musicians. Are there times that you highlight them? Yeah, we highlight them uh, in terms of at Jazz Lincoln Center, females lead their own groups. When we first started Jazz Lincoln Center, actually the first, one of the first three concerts was about ladies. Um, I, I tend to not like women in jazz as a theme. I just, people were playing, they were, Betty Carter was not a woman in jazz. She was Betty Carter. Many times we asked why we don't have women in the band. The evolution of the band was was how it was. We didn't really pick or not pick people because they were black or white or women. Generally, sections have decided who plays. Now we have an audition process. We'll audition people, and they'll come. It's a screened audition, and um, we'll see what that yields. I would like to see there be a lot more jobs in jazz. Then we'll see more women. If you only have one full-time salaried orchestra, in the country, I mean, it's hard to say what demographic anybody will be, but we need more jobs. I'm going to tell one short story, and I don't know if you remember this. I was a college student. I called you on the phone, and I said, uh, I have to do a report on someone who's doing what I want to do in music. Can we talk for a few minutes? And you went on, and you helped me with my homework. <laughs> well, we'll end up being like 45 minutes. And so this is actually the second interview. And uh, I got an A on that paper. I lost it. <laughs> right. But um, I'm just saying thank you for being so generous. No, man. Thank you. Happy birthday, yeah. man. Yeah, I appreciate you. Yeah, you're right. And that's our talk with Winton Marcellus. Thank you, Winton, for joining us on the show today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. We appreciate you for it. And to you, the listener, thanks for pressing play on this episode. Uh, if there's a guest that you'd like to hear from or if there's a specific challenge you're facing in your music career, let us know about it. At BehindTheNote.com, you can leave a voicemail. Let us know your thoughts. We'll reach out to that guest for you or we'll answer your question and try to help you along the way. Uh, also, if you enjoy what you heard today, the most important thing that you can do is subscribe to the show. If you're already subscribed, then you can share the show. Please do one of those two things, if not both. 
we appreciate you thanks for pressing play next week we'll be back with some more great content for you god bless you